Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Tuesday, June 28th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Moscow dismissed its looming debt default as a farce. Credit Suisse is in trouble again. He was just found guilty in a case involving Bulgarian drug money laundering. And travelers in the UK are bracing for a summer of strikes. I'm Jess Smith, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. A Russian missile slammed into a shopping mall in central Ukraine yesterday. Ukrainian authorities last night confirmed 13 dead and more than 40 civilians wounded. President Volodymyr Zelensky posted a video showing the shopping mall on fire after the attack. He pleaded with Western leaders for more missile defense systems. This attack is the latest sign that Moscow is prepared to escalate its war on Ukraine despite international efforts to isolate the Russian economy. And Moscow looks set to default on its debt for the first time in almost 25 years. Almost $100 million worth of interest payments on Russian government bonds came due this past Sunday with no sign of payment. Here's the FT's Niku Asgari. Russia has repeatedly called this an absolute farce and unjustified and an artificial default because unlike in many traditional classic sovereign country defaults, Russia has the money to pay it has more than the money to pay. They have so much cash from um, oil and gas reserves and oil and gas sales, but they simply can't pay given the sanctions in place. They can't get the money to bondholders. They've offered to pay the interest payments in rubles instead of dollars, but under the terms of the bonds, you, you simply can't do that. You can't change the currency that the bonds are in. And they see this as a Western problem, that the West is against them, but really it's a Russian problem. This has all arisen because of Russia's war in Ukraine and all the sanctions because of that. So, Nico, what would a default mean for Russia? I mean, how significant would this be? Short term, it's not very significant at all, really, for Russia. I mean, the country is flush with cash and the population on the ground really won't feel any effects of this. But in the long term, if and when Russia decides to come back to foreign bond markets and foreign investors choose to buy its bonds, which at the moment is almost impossible given, you know, the war and the fact that it's become an international pariah. If and when that time does come, Russia will face much higher borrowing costs on its debt than it did before the war and before its default. And coming back to the present, what would a default mean for foreign investors, you know, the ones holding this Russian government debt? The next step is really to see what bondholders decide to do. They can either demand to get their money back if if 25% of them vote to do so, but that will require a lot of litigation and it's unclear how realistically how that will proceed and how that will go ahead. On the other hand, the bondholders might decide to wait and just see how both the war plays out, how sanctions play out and just see what happens. It's all down to the bondholders, really. Nico Asgari is the FT's acting capital markets reporter. Credit Suisse has another notch on its belt of scandals. Yesterday, a Swiss court found the lender guilty of failing to stop the laundering of Bulgarian drug money. It's the first time a Swiss court has found a domestic bank guilty of a corporate crime. Here's the FT Sam Jones with details. Prosecutors said that there were sufficient red flags uh, that that Credit Suisse really should have recognised that this money might be tainted. Uh, And two of the most obvious of those were, uh, one, the fact that a large number of deposits were made in cash 
bundles and bundles of banknotes brought in suitcases, driven in the trunk of cars overland to Switzerland, uh, which obviously does not hint at a, a legitimate source of that money. And two, that two of the individuals connected to the clients Credit Suisse was working with were actually assassinated, which again is not the kind of thing that happens in most ordinary lines of business. So, Sam, as you've reported, the court imposed a fine of two million Swiss francs. So clearly it's not going to dent the bank's bottom line. But what impact could this verdict have on Credit Suisse's reputation? Credit Suisse is already reeling from a number of scandals that have hit it over the last two years uh, that range from the sort of Greenshill fund scandal uh, through to corporate spying. And this is this is another one. So it's, an, it's another kind of chink in the armor of Credit Suisse. There's unlikely to be an immediate uh, legal implication in terms of any any further cases coming down the line. And of course, Credit Suisse has also said that it rejects the court's ruling and it will appeal this case. So this isn't the final uh, word in this saga. But this is a sort of landmark case in a more important way, which is that this is the first time that a Swiss bank has been found guilty of criminal offences uh, by Swiss courts. So this is a sort of a watershed in that sense. That's the FT's Austria and Switzerland correspondent, Sam Jones. The UK is facing a summer of union strikes. Last week, the country had its biggest rail strike in a generation. And the rail union is threatening more stoppages unless the government backs its demands for higher pay. Other unions could follow suit. Our economics correspondent, Delphine Strauss, has been following this, and she joins me now. Hi, Delphine. Hello. Delphine, before we get into the broader landscape, I want to ask about the rail strike. I mean, what's the frustration behind it and what's the rail union demanding? The dispute is about a number of things, but it boils down to a very big reorganisation of the railway, which has been hit really hard by the pandemic and by the post-pandemic shift to remote working, which means that there is quite a big standoff over job security over all kinds of changes to the way they work, but also, and this is this is what applies to all kinds of other other people across the country, overpay. Inflation's heading into double digits. And what's caught the government by surprise is that a lot of union members who've in the past been seen as quite militant and activist and haven't had necessarily that much public sympathy, this time have a lot of the public on their side. Do you see this possibly rippling into other industries? I mean, could we see more strikes by unions and not just rail workers? We've seen more disputes with unions heading towards strike action than we have had for quite some time. Some aviation workers at Heathrow Airport have voted for strike action and there are similar votes taking place at the moment with postal workers, with communications workers and a number of other sectors. The big question is what happens in large parts of the public sector where the government has been trying to hold down pay deals to a much lower level than the ones we've seen across the private sector. We haven't yet heard what the government's offer is going to be for teachers, for nurses, for for other public sector workers. And if it does lead to big disputes, they would take um, you know several months to get going. But those are the ones that could really lead to large numbers of people striking if if things go wrong. And more broadly, Delphine, has the UK labour movement changed as the economy shifted since the pandemic? I mean, how does all this labour activity fit in with a new economic landscape? 
There has been a pickup in union activity, both in the UK and elsewhere. And we've obviously seen a big rise in support for unions in the US. You know, lots of talk of whether this will be a sort of new era for the unions. At the moment, that's not the case really in the UK. It is still um, an environment in which union membership is much lower than it was in the past. But unions are not the only way in which workers can wield bargaining power. What we're seeing is that in a tight labour market, a lot of people are ready to vote with their feet. They're ready to switch jobs. You know, as we've seen in aviation and hospitality, if you're not offering job security or working conditions that people want, then you will have a problem hiring. And we're seeing pay going up, you know, faster as a result in a lot of areas. Delphine Strauss is the FT's economics correspondent. Thanks, Delphine. Thanks very much. Before we go, new data shows that U.S. companies spent more on private jets for top executives' personal use last year than they have in a decade. That's according to a division of institutional shareholder services. Many companies relaxed restrictions on private jet use out of fear their top bosses would catch COVID on commercial flights. One of the biggest such spenders was Facebook parent Meta. Last year, the company spent $1.6 million on private flights for Mark Zuckerberg. You can read more on all these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.